0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org.
1: Josho, Pat Phelan. Josho has been the um, abbess of the Chapel Hill Zen Center since uh, 2000. And it was within a few months of that time that both Choro and I uh, began practicing at the Chapel Hill Zen Center. Um, Joshua began uh, meditating in college in Oregon in the late 60s and uh, immediately from graduating uh, moved straight to San Francisco Zen Center um, and lived as a, as a resident there from 1971 till about uh, 1991 when she was asked to come and lead the Chapel Hill Zen Center group. Joshua was ordained by uh, Zentatsu Richard Baker and received a Dharma transmission from Sojin Mil Weitzman in 1995. You know, since I got here a few years ago, I've really been wanting to have um, Josho join us in some way. So this is a, you know, a great treat. Um, I'm so grateful that you're here with us today um, and welcome Josho.
2: Good morning. and. Thank you for inviting me to be here this morning. When I was in high school, uh, for some reason that I never understood, I was really drawn to the idea of meditating. And I tried it several times, but nothing happened. And I thought that something was supposed to happen. And I really wanted something mystical or beautiful to happen. And I would try sitting uh, just before I went to bed at night after doing my homework. But after about five or 10 minutes, I either got bored or began falling asleep. So I stopped. And I thought maybe I was a little retarded uh, spiritually or something (laughs) because it just nothing happened. And one thing that drew me to Zen was that it had a meditation practice. And I found out later that it even had instructions for how to meditate, which was a big help to me. And when I first began sitting Zazen, I really didn't know anything about Shakyamuni Buddha, Buddhist history, or even Buddhist teaching. And I first heard about Zen when I read Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger. And from it, I got the sense that Zen practice brought about a kind of authenticity, focusing on that which is most essential. At least, that's how it sounded to me. And later, after I'd been practicing Zazen regularly for about 12 years, I was in a small study group at the San Francisco Zen Center and at one of the meetings my teacher was talking about someone who was fairly well known in San Francisco and he said that this person had become a Buddhist And although this was a simple thing when I heard it, I felt a kind of blankness or puzzlement because I didn't know what it meant to become a Buddhist At the same time, I also thought it was strange that I didn't know, but I didn't know what happened or what the criteria were that before you weren't a Buddhist and afterwards you were. And by this time I'd been ordained for several years, but I'd never at any point decided now I want to be a Buddhist or even now I am a Buddhist. I decided to take the precepts for Jukai, but I didn't receive the precepts in order to become a Buddhist. I took the precepts to help clarify and strengthen my practice. But my identification was fundamentally with meditation practice, or zazen. And I didn't go around thinking of myself as a Buddhist, except in the context of some form you might be given, some place like a hospital, where you have four choices and need to choose one. Such as, I would like a Christian funeral, a Jewish funeral, a Buddhist funeral, or no funeral. In that kind of context, I would clearly identify myself as a Buddhist But in my everyday life, I didn't carry around the identity of being a Buddhist. So in the study group, I asked, what does it mean to become a Buddhist? And the response my teacher gave uh, was not uncommon. He said, what do you think it means? (laughs) So I began examining, what does it mean to be a Buddhist? Does it mean viewing life as impermanent or accepting that existence is marked by dissatisfaction? Does it mean to practice by chanting the name of Amida Buddha or the Lotus Sutra um, or practicing mindfulness or Zazen? And I found that I had a much clearer idea of what it meant for someone to be a Christian You know, it has to do with the belief in God and Jesus and the Bible. But in Buddhism, there is no God. There's no savior. And although there are many sutras and texts, I don't think there's even a single text that all Buddhists refer to. And generally, Buddhists don't believe in something. Buddhism is based on practice. So my question became focused as, what is the fundamental characteristic common to all Buddhists? Or what practice might be common to all Buddhists? And I carried this question with me for several years. And I found it really helpful to keep examining this question. And I recommend the practice of keeping a question close, especially If you read something in Buddhism that you don't understand or that sounds contradictory, keep bringing it up. What does this really mean? Or what is the meaning behind the words? And the answer that I finally found (laughs) uh, to my question was taking refuge. And now I'd like to shift a little one of the legends about Shakyamuni Buddha is that once when he was asleep, uh, he was visited by a deity who asked him, the inner tangle and outer tangle. This generation is entangled in a tangle. And so I ask Gotama Buddha, who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? And The Buddha responded, when a wise person, established well in virtue, develops concentration and insight, then as a monk ardent and sagacious, one succeeds in disentangling this tangle. And this is found at the beginning of the Visuddhi Magga, or the path of purification, which is a classic Buddhist text compiled in the fifth century that summarizes the practices taught by Shakyamuni Buddha. And the tangle that's referred to as the network of our cravings, which the Vasudhi Maga compared to a bamboo thicket in which the branches and stems are so tightly tangled and interwoven that they create an impenetrable barrier. And the word that's translated as craving is also translated as thirst or desire. And it's the cause of attachment and therefore of suffering. And this network of craving can be for material things, for skills we'd like to have, like playing the piano really well, as well as physical and mental attributes. It includes the way we want to be regarded by others, like being considered smart, competent or compassionate, attractive or powerful. It includes the desire to experience certain states of mind, such as feeling happy or peaceful, having peak experiences, and even the desire for enlightenment. These, of course, are only a few of the many, many possible cravings and desires. And I think of desire as being similar to wanting. And it can be wanting anything or any experience that's outside this moment. And the tangle or network of our cravings, also includes our habits and conditioning, both our conditioned responses to situations and the interactions we have with others, as well as our perceptions and the way we interpret perception, which to a great extent we learn from our family, our society and culture, which creates a kind of collective or cultural karmic effect. And as human beings, we tend to develop patterns for the way we think for how we do things, for the ways we interact, and how we respond to or feel about what's going on around us. And most of us repeat these responses until they become unconscious or nearly unconscious activity. It's as if the momentum of our conditioning and habits is so great that it's not possible to redirect its course. And by getting a sense for how we sustain our karmic knots through false perception and through the activity of our body, speech and mind uh, is how we begin to disentangle and loosen the knot. And I think we could say that enlightenment is when the tangle of our cravings including our conditioning and habits, stops completely and forever. And when we become aware of our tangle, even for an instant, that's practice. And sometimes when we're aware of our tangles, they'll disengage for a short time. And there are many ways to bring awareness back to the present and returning to our physical presence, to the non-discursive presence of our body and breath, is one way to take a break from the habit of thinking, from the momentum of our conceptualized world. The practice of basic awareness of coming to a place where we feel grounded, settled, and connected is like coming home, and it's another way of taking refuge. And in Buddhism, taking refuge has the meaning of coming back, as well as to shelter or protect, of going to a place of safety, like a sanctuary where animals are protected. And what Buddhists take refuge in are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And in early Buddhism, taking refuge in Buddha meant taking refuge in the historical Buddha, or the enlightened one. And Dharma meant the teachings of Buddha, like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and dependent co-origination. And Sangha meant the nuns and monks who practiced with Buddha. And later it came to mean the communities of fully ordained monks and nuns. And people have been taking refuge since Shakyamuni Buddha's time. And it's one of the oldest Buddhist practices, and it may be the only Buddhist practice that's common to all the different Buddhist traditions and all the different countries and cultures that Buddhism has taken root in over the past 2,500 years. And the refuges are often referred to as the three treasures, the three jewels, or the three gems. There's something precious. And one thing I started doing, and I can't remember what prompted it, is when I see a dead animal by the road, I say the refuges three times. May you take refuge in Buddha. May you take refuge in Dharma. May you take refuge in Sangha. With the intention of wishing the being a smooth transition from this life, wishing it ease. And no matter (laughs) how slowly I'm driving, By the time I finish saying the refuges, I'm pretty far away from the animal. And what surprises me is how hard it is to complete saying the refuges three times. Both my car and my mind travel so fast that it's hard to keep the refuges in mind, even a little while. And in Japanese Buddhism, the word for refuge is made up of two characters. The first means to unreservedly throw oneself into. And the second character is to rely upon. And together they mean having enough faith in what we rely upon to be able to unreservedly throw ourselves into it, which is another way of talking about wholeheartedness. And Sin Master Dogen said, that the way a child leaps into its father's arms, we should leap into the three treasures. And in Japan, this attitude is sometimes used in bowing, leaping into the prostration, abandoning reservations and self-clinging. And I read a Dharma talk by Chan Master Shunyin where he referred to doing formless prostrations. But he didn't explain what he meant. (laughs) So I've wondered what a formless prostration might be. And the only thing I can imagine is in some way mentally letting go or shifting internally. And I have the image of sitting zazen, unreservedly leaping, into this inhalation throwing myself into the exhalation without any interference or resistance trusting body and mind so completely that it's possible to stop tracking them just leaping 100 percent into the present And both Robert Aiken Roshi and Tenshin Anderson Roshi talk about the meaning of refuge as going out and returning, or constantly returning, returning to Buddha or awakened heart and mind. And another meaning of refuge is recalling in the sense of remembering to practice the way we remember to be aware or to be mindful. And still another meaning of refuge is to find one's source in, or one's origin in. And in sin, Buddha is often translated as awakened mind, or enlightened consciousness, or the unconditioned. And Dharma is the teaching or practice that helps us return to an awake, spacious mind. Dharma also means universal truth. And maybe the most basic truth is impermanence, that everything changes. And Aiken Roshi said, Sangha is the kinship of all things every entity in this universe and of all universes, past, present, and future. It's to the enlightenment of this total sangha that we're dedicated in our vows. And he also included things like our thoughts and clouds (laughs) as the sangha we practice with. Another way of regarding taking refuge in Buddha, is taking refuge in our original face, or our original face before our parents were born. So um, I think of this as a way to take refuge in something <clears throat> that stops words or stops conceptual activity, since it's pretty hard to think about our original face before our parents were born. So taking refuge isn't exactly doing something. To take refuge is to return. And when we take refuge in Buddha, we stop and return to our fundamental being our original face so instead of doing something we stop doing what separates us from our original face before our parents were born and one way to practice taking refuge is to look at what we actually take refuge in which usually brings us back to our cravings we might find that we take refuge in eating in alcohol coffee smoking (laughs) watching television in our storyline or fantasies or in states of mind such as anger self-justification blaming others, or feeling victimized. And again, the list is endless. But by looking at where we turn for relief, we can get a sense for how we distract ourselves and how we come back. And if you find that you have recurring fantasies, try to be aware of what was happening right before your fantasy began. And is fantasizing a way to escape from something uncomfortable in your present experience? And another way to practice with the refuges is by turning away from small mind, from our preferences and defenses, and instead, trying to turn toward openness of mind, toward open-heartedness, the place where we no longer work to be ourselves. And one way to begin is by saying the refuges, especially at points of transition in your daily routine, by offering incense and saying the refuges before going to bed when waking up in the morning, when starting work or returning home from work, but basically any time you can as a way to remind yourself to come home. And this offers an opportunity for a break in the tangle of our unconscious activity. And sometimes I say the refuges when I'm taking a walk by saying a couple of syllables in a rhythmic way with each step. And I don't know if this sounds like mind control or self-hypnotism, but my consciousness has such a strong habit of going going out in every direction that saying the refuges with my footsteps helps bring my attention back, allowing it to enter muscles, breath and mind but simply saying the refuges isn't necessarily taking refuge so what is taking refuge what happens and sometimes I think of taking refuge as turning away from my self referential point of view, that's limited by my conditioning and preferences, by my fear and judgment and turning toward openness of heart and mind, toward wholeness, returning to a place where I can let go of grasping and defending, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, or psychological. And I think in whatever way we're able to open to something more spacious is taking refuge, whether or not we're actually saying the refuges. So anything that brings you back to this moment is a way of taking refuge. And sometimes the refuges are given as be one with Buddha, be one with Dharma, be one with Sangha, or simply, be Buddha. And Katagiri Roshi said, if we're mindful that we're Buddha, it's really the driving force that gives life to our everyday activity. Thank you very much. And um, if anyone has questions, um, I think someone will be monitoring that and uh, calling on you.
1: Yes, I can help with that. Um, I think I can see almost everybody. There's also the option to raise your hand in the
2: participant uh, options.
1: Yes, thank you, GK. I'll I'll keep an eye on that as well. I just saw Choro's hand go up, though.
2: Choro? My hand, which is not blue. Um.
3: (laughs) Joshua I think I heard you say that you can take refuge with your thoughts. Did you say that? Or your thoughts can be part, it can be included in taking refuge?
2: Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) Um, how I said
1: that? <laughs> I, I think she said that the th- her, the thoughts were part of the sangha. To include it as sangha was what ah, I said. Sangha,
2: thank you. So part of refuge as sangha. Could you, um, could you unpack that a little bit? Uh, My thoughts, I always feel, uh, I frequently feel like I need to do something about them and I'm trying not to uh, cut them off <clears throat> and to be more friendly towards them. Mm-hmm but they sure do feel afflictive at times. Yeah. So um, I think what you're referring to is um, Eikon Roshi talking about Sangha as everything in the universe. And I've heard him include everything, such as thoughts and clouds, as what we practice with uh, under that heading. Of sangha and um, the first thing to practice with anything is to be aware you know to notice so um, I think many of us when we first start sitting zazen we may have a peaceful time but then at some point we start noticing how much we're thinking And it's not that suddenly we're thinking a lot, we're thinking all the time, but suddenly we notice that we're thinking. (laughs) So, first, uh, to understand that we're thinking, and especially to get a sense of um, maybe a theme behind the thought. And, you know, again, if there's a theme of feeling. You know, angry or self-righteous or uh, being taken advantage of or mistreated. Um, If there's some kind of theme or escaping um, for the winter holidays or going out for a great meal, you know, to try to pay attention to the theme of our thoughts because that's uh, like a key to open a door, to see, to get more in touch with um, kind of unconscious, um, you know, wish or craving. So, um, and I'm talking about both in our everyday activity and in zazen, and I used to have Lots of food fantasies during seshine for the first, um, I don't know, five or six years. <laughs> I was really hungry a lot, and uh, then maybe after about ten or twelve years, I was sitting seshine and I kept noticing I was having these fantasies of this swimming pool, you know, blue painted blue and these splashing. Uh, and I really, really wanted to go swimming. And uh, this was a summer session with Aiken Roshi in the Sierra Mountains of California. And it was about 90 degrees in the room. <laughs> it was just kind of interesting to see how not paying attention to maybe feeling warm elicited these fantasies that would bring... Of something that would bring relief. So you know, we all have fantasies and dreams and thoughts, and um, you know, uh, um, our minds are so great at free association <laughs> that um, you know, I, I I think in Zen we try to think intentionally by setting time aside to think about things we need to think about but when we're not thinking we try to let go of thoughts but many times when we let go of thoughts they come back you know in the back door so um, how can we use these thoughts for practice and i think by really trying to understand um, something about their message so i don't know if that helps but it's some thoughts about thinking
3: yes thank you very much
1: Um, i have a question but uh, sherry i see you as well why don't you go first
3: okay (laughs) thank you uh for your talk um let's see i'm unmuted so um that the little part you uh said about when you're driving and you perhaps see a dead animal on the road um and uh you say the three refuges for it and it somehow it well i ride my bike a lot and so seeing dead animals is much more perso- much more upfront oh, yeah when you're uh um, seeing a dead raccoon or a dead owl or something and i when i'm writing i just all of a sudden i just hit when i see that i just go on this uh whole story about now who's going to feed the chicks back in the nest and and so um so the quality of your thoughts and the direction they go i don't know maybe i have a a habit of going in the the sadness and oh this is world is so bad and why are people driving so quickly and not paying attention but I um, so thank you for what you said I I could actually turn my thinking around and make a conscious effort to appreciate their life and to send them off into hopefully something better or what
2: and the same thing for their offspring
1: Um, Joshua, I I was really appreciating um, your saying that refuge has something to do with going from doing to non-doing. And I wondered if if you could say, you know, how do we, we're so used to doing, um, and I think, you know, I I have some idea of what you're talking about, maybe from Sashin or something, but in our everyday life, how do we go from this kind of momentum of doing to to not doing?
2: Well, I think not doing um, has a lot to do with just being. And our survival has depended on learning cause and effect and doing things for a reason. And we're deeply, deeply conditioned to do something for a reason, to sit zazen to become more peaceful, to sit zazen to um, have some ease or um, refuge from the difficulties that we feel in our lives. So um, I'll start with, to a large extent, I think sitting zazen is getting your bottom on the cushion or on the chair, having an upright spine or back, and letting go, and allowing uh, ourselves to just be. So throughout the day, um, I think one way to do this is To just do whatever we're doing and to try to notice how much our thoughts carry us away and to come back. So if we're getting into our car, try to feel your hand on the door to the car. Try to notice how you're sitting down in an internal sensory way. You know, feel your. Bottom drop down <laughs> to the car seat and uh, getting feel how you get your legs in when you're driving. Try to notice what your shoulders are doing, how your hands are if they're clenched or just holding the steering wheel, what your posture's like. You know, so it's sort of like when you drive, just drive if you're working on a computer try to just work on the computer. (laughs) Um, And if you want to listen to music or watch a television show or the news, try to just do that. But so much of the time we're doing about (laughs) three or four things at once. So um, I really think the more we can simplify our activity, that the more we can settle um, in a more unified way into the present. And, you know, I think the direction that Chinese then, or Chan, goes is not to try to do something or achieve something or to enter different stages of meditation or realization. It goes the direction of trying to drop everything that distracts us from just being, just being.
0: Um, Tim, I'm not sure if we're just jumping in, but I guess I'm jumping in. Um, Thank you, Joshua, for your your talk. I really appreciate it. I am, um, I really appreciate the, the analogy of the tangle and Mm -hmm. how the tangle is our network of cravings and thirsts and desires i am i am noticing that my tangle is much more busy thick thick a thicket of bamboo it's busier it's it's more tangled than ever before during the uh, pandemic and during the economic uh, realities and the political realities of what are going on right now, I notice that um, bad challenging moments at work, which in the past might be a challenging moment and then it passes become, Oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. I've got two kids at home blah 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 blah. it just you know it goes and goes and goes right now and that's that's one experience i have i think that is just part of our our moment right now um but as i think about it i think that um tim mentioned that you were you were in residence at the san francisco center in 1971 is when you started well vietnam war was going on in that moment uh that was not a happy time for this country uh that was a panicked time in many ways that was a lot of political upheaval and then of course if we go back for the buddhist tradition there has been an incredible amount of of unrest injustice economic uncertainty food insecurity you name it it's all part of this history um and yet this this story of of the tangle and disentanglement is a constant through this tradition and so um my my thought on this and it's something i wonder if you can address is is that is this still this is still even in this moment even with everything that's going on even with the uncertainty of of everything we're facing right now even with the incredible injustice that that i am waking up to um um, even with all of this this is still the through line this entanglement is is a major through line um sitting and being in the moment is a major through line um, is a way to to get through this Um, does that
2: could you i didn't quite understand that word did you say through line
0: yeah yes
2: through line okay you know i think um even more than ever we're living this kind of disembodied um reality today for example <laughs> um, and that the more we can do anything we can find to get into our bodies um, is helpful so it, you know we have a great deal of i don't know if it's disembodied information In the news, but certainly, um, you know, we have, we're informed of disasters all over the world that we can't do anything about. And I just think if we can come back to our body or do something actively like taking a walk, any kind of exercise singing, <laughs> getting into our breathing and body, that that provides, um, you know, um, our bodily present. Presence is an antidote to our virtual life, which we already have to a large extent just through the computer and through our, our thinking and fantasies. How do we get into the present uh, in a kind of holistic, unified way? So I don't know if that's really answering your question, but I think that's our challenge and that that uh, will help keep us sane.
4: Joshua, I just want to say, first of all, thank you uh, for being here. And uh, after having heard of you so much <laughs> the past couple of years, good things. Uh, and, and in particular, with, with Tim being here and now Choro being here, um, although this is the first time I've, I've seen and heard you, it feels like you have already been here. So I, I want to thank you for all of that. Uh, one of the things that stood out for me from your talk today came very early on, actually. You made some reference when you were talking about your, your early efforts in meditation. Um, at medita- at uh, you, you mentioned meditation as a refuge, or Zazen as a refuge. And I was so glad to hear that because I, I have thought that myself over these past years, uh, that regardless of what turmoil is going on within me or in my life or within the Sangha or within the world at large, I I, I have felt that as a conscious relief at times. That at least here is a period of time where I have the opportunity or the invitation to set that all aside at least for a few minutes. Like I I don't have to worry should I be doing something else. No, this is this is the thing and it's not an escape in the sense that I'm not going to stay here. Like it's just temporary, but it's it feels so necessary in, in order to take on those things when the bell rings, when when the period is over. So I'm not sure if there's much of a question in this, but I, I wanted to, to recognize that. And I guess if, if there is a question, it's like, why does this seem why have I not heard of this more often, you know of, of, of Zazen itself as, as refuge, um, because it's been a very palpable part of my experience, but it's not something I often find here in talks or read in books that that specific point isn't. It, is it, so I don't know. If, if, if you don't have an answer or, or, or don't have thoughts on that, that is fine. I mainly just wanted to thank you for, for the talk and for that. Um, particular part
2: of it. Well, uh, thank you. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, visit Rinso-en, and where uh, Hoitsu Suzuki, uh, Suzuki Roshi's son, is continuing um, taking care of the temple. And he did a calligraphy for me, which he said, because uh, I can't read Japanese. <laughs> um, Kind of uh, something like coming to zazen or returning home and i think returning home to our most fundamental being is what taking refuge is and sitting zazen is coming home i i think for me and um I, I think Sojin Roshi has talked about, you know, we sit zazen in the morning as a foundation for going out and meeting the rest of our lives.. Right. So um, yeah, that's <laughs> I think that's why many of us are here. I mean, you it would um, one could come to, as in center, and be involved in activities and skip the zazen, <laughs> but <laughs> most of us are here because of the zazen, whether it's easy or not. So, so I agree with you.
4: Thank you. Yes. And, and it also occurs to me now hearing your response that it's, it's embodying refuge too like literally embodying it.
2: And I also think the same for prostrations. It's a way to embody letting go. It's a way for the mind uh, to follow the body in just dropping and letting go. Uh,
0: Joshin, thank you very much for your your inspiration this morning. Um, I particularly like what you said, uh, which really really impacted me was when you when you were talking about leaping into the prost- prostrations and leaping into the uh, three treasures, um, and that reminded me in the Genzo koan with uh, when he says leap leap free of the one and the many,
2: uh-huh.
0: and uh, just. just the idea of leaping. It's sort of its sort of like bringing yourself out, out of yourself. I'm not sure what, I mean, can you elaborate a little bit more on your on what you think about leaping? <clears throat> well, um,
2: yeah. yeah uh, I like <laughs> going back to the Gensho Khan, leaping beyond the many and the one. Or however it's stated, uh, in a sense, is leaping beyond our discrimination, our discriminating, dividing consciousness. So it's a way of returning to wholeness in the sense of holistic experience or unification.
3: Okay, thank you.
1: Uh, Bunkai if you'd like to go. Okay, um, then Maureen.
5: Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to thank you for your talk and the care that you um, put into it. I mean, um, there were so many gems in there and um And I thought, oh, that's like your lifetime. You know, like you're pouring little bits of your life experience into um, what you shared with us. So I I really appreciated that. Um, I I wanted to share one thing I realized you said um, kind of understanding our habits, (laughs) right? And patterns of thinking. And you know, what I I realized earlier this morning and it's a political thing, so I apologize, but I thought, oh my gosh. I'm so happy. Apparently Trump's lost, apparently. And so it made me so happy, but then I thought, Oh, I've gotten into this habit of being really angry and snarky. And, you know, when I think about certain political party and certain political leaders, and I realized, Oh, I've got that, like that momentum, right, going and I'm going to have to address the fact that I, it's a part of me now. And, and, um, I'll have to shift that or change that. And and it was, I heard that in what you said, and I I just wanted to get any thoughts from you on that. Like that is a big momentum. And then if you you just could share how, when you were so young, you even thought about meditating, that struck me, Um, you know, when you were very young, you suddenly started meditating. So thank you.
2: Um, Well, I think, probably uh, most of us, if not all of us, um, have felt pretty cynical about um, speech actions and policies that have been uh, at the forefront of our country. And, you know, including, um, you know, the legislatures. and so i think uh, (laughs) to be balanced um, if we recognize in ourselves how we act when we feel insecure afraid um disconnected and i think disconnection is one of the main sources for self-centeredness you know doing what's best for me because we don't feel disconnected and whether it's connected to our family our neighbors our country people in our country to animals or trees you know it's all Uh, There are many layers of disconnection. And that's how we can harm anything or disregard anything, is through feeling disconnected. So, um, (laughs) Alex Fine is the name of the person who does our Zoom. And when I host a Zazen or a study group, I log on as Alex Fine, but I don't know why (laughs) this is happening. (laughs) Um, So I think to look at ways we feel disconnected and to try to vow to approach connection. Or inclusion. And when we see misbehavior, to try to see it as insecurity um, and lack of connection. But at the same time, not to dismiss it. It's not okay to act on those feelings or um, internal, you know, um, formations. But as a way to understand why people are behaving the way they are, I think it's it all goes back to disconnection and fear.
6: Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciated the manner and the content of your talk the combination of personal stories and concrete advice and the grounding things that you talked about um, the very concrete things of zazen and one thing i really appreciated was how you sat with a question of what does it mean to be a buddhist for so long um this idea of sitting with a question rather than the story or the explanation of what I think is going on, which I can certainly get trapped in, um, has particularly affected me because I haven't been able to sit particularly since we had troubles, like it's been what, I don't know, several years now here, and I, um, the idea that Zazen is a returning and an embodiment I think will help me. And also maybe sitting with a question of, well, what is what is going on? Not just the story of what I think is going on, because um, it really pains me. I mean, I I feel like I I should be over this by now. I shouldn't be still talking about this. But that's been true for me. Um, but those embodiment moments can still happen. But if if maybe you could say something about things you've really struggled with that. Um, where you had a turning point that maybe that's my question thank you
2: well it sounds like uh you may be a little stuck and um so it sounds like there's something that's unresolved for you and i would um you know when you're feeling calm Try to call up what's unresolved or what's disturbing or disturbed in you about what happened, and to really try to understand why that's bothering you, and to look at that feeling and try to remember have you ever felt that way? before? When was the first time, you know, as much as you can, kind of exploring back that you've had that kind of feeling or response? And when you get as close to it as you can, then turn toward it. And you can turn toward it with the question of how Can I help you? How can I support you? What do you need? Because there's probably some kind of very genuine need underneath the story. So you want to get beyond the story to your more immediate personal feelings, emotional responses. And look at um, sort of how that came about in you. Because you know many people had many other responses. But it, so it's based on some of your conditioning or past experience. And to try to go as far back as you can or as deep as you can to what is this feeling and when did I first have it? And then how can I care for that part of myself that's feeling hurt or disillusioned or difficulty from uh, what happened?
6: That's very helpful. Thank you very much. I
1: don't immediately see um, other hands. Maybe this is a good time to, um, to close. But thank you again so much for, for being with us today. Um, it's, it's wonderful to see you and, and play.
2: Thank you for all your invitations over the years. I'm so glad I can finally um, visit even virtually.